Welcome back, everyone. Today, we've got a very special episode. I'm going to let Jeff introduce himself real fast, and then we'll get into this. Good morning. Good afternoon. My name is Jeff Kluge, the happiness ethicist. Looking at two very powerful words, ethics and happiness, or your own personal well-being. This is about the study of these two topics and how they really intersect together and make a substantial difference for our own personal well-being and the success of the organizations that we're around. So in case this is your first time listening to Are You a Robot? and you don't know what we're all about, this is a series where we aim to tackle some of the greatest challenges that stem from AI and the related technologies. We really circulate around this idea of ethics, AI ethics, AI governance. The way that we're doing that is we're finding interesting people to come on here, talk to me about their vision of the world, their vision of ethics, their vision of how they see things in this moment in time, as it is such a deciding point, an inflection point in our lives, you could say. So today is a story of redemption. It is unique because it's not exactly what we've been doing before. Yet I had an immense amount of curiosity for Jeff's story and I wanted to share it. And I really appreciate having the platform to be able to interview him and know exactly what is going on in someone's mind, in someone's life that drives them to do the things that they do and how they come out the other side, a better person for it. So the conversations don't stop here. If you'd like to continue talking to us, please join the Slack community, which you can find in the link below. There are all kinds of smart people in there and I encourage you to jump in, introduce yourself, let us know what you're working on and how you see the world. Last but not least, I will mention our sponsor, Ethics Grade. If you have been listening for a while, you know that they've been with us from the very start. And there is something very special about what they've got going on right now. They have just released their first cohort of data and they've updated it even to give benchmarks on all of the top companies that we think of when we think of tech. So for those who don't know, they're an ESG ratings company. And ESG means that they measure the non-financial impact that a company has. So what's really cool about this is they released all of this data and the benchmarks on companies' AI ethics programs. So now if you have ever been interested in how the AI ethics programs at companies like Twitter or Facebook or Microsoft compare, then check out their website. I implore you to go have a play with it. You can download all the different ratings and see why they've been given these ratings. And hopefully you can compare companies like Twitter and Facebook or even Tesla and Toyota and Amazon and Alibaba. So that's it for now. Give them a 
Click in the description if you would like to find out more about Ethics Grade or just type in your search bar, ethicsgrade.io, and you will magically appear on their website. So now let's talk with Jeff Kluge about his life story and how he came to be where he's at with his ethics consulting. Are you a robot? Jeff, it's great to have you on here. Can you tell us a little bit about where'd you grow up? What were you doing as a kid? I grew up in a suburb of Chicago. I was a product of the 80s. It was Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, which has only gotten to a magnitude of that with social media. It was Dallas and Dynasty. And there was even a part in life where I learned the art of the deal. My first intro to computers and technology was back in the early 80s when my family had purchased an Apple II computer. Mm. And I remember it had a prominent place right on the card table in one of the center rooms. And the first game I recall playing was Space Invaders, then it was Asteroids. It was some very crude word processing at the very beginning of it. And there were Ultima II was one of the first real player games that I remember. And my first hack at that time was with a football game where I was able to get into the code and reprogram some of the lines of code. And this before the days of YouTube, so it was just trial and error. And it was fascinating and it was exciting to see what you wrote show up on the screen. And that led through some parts of high school but as we find when we're young and rather impressionable, I allowed others to shift a little bit what I felt is a priority and other things took over and began to grab my attention and interest and led me over to finance later on. So you really enjoyed these video games and this tech and then friends pushed you into finance? Usually I think it's the other way around. Well, it was the, the time going back to the 80s, if you were in computers or technology, you know, there was a coding class that I was a part of and we were actually coding on punch cards at the time. Mm. And I remember that just other people in the class, there were some friends of mine that started using nerd you're a geek. What are you doing with all this stuff? And this was, again, in the early 80s, so it wasn't as, as prevalent. Back then, it was somewhat cutting edge to have a computer at home. And it was there that I just let those other people's opinions change what I thought was interesting. Hmm. And later in life, I look back as one of the, the deep regrets, and I hope that we can have some impact here of, for the audience what is it that we really enjoy doing where time just disappears? And do we give any of that up because of other people? It's mm. a great point. So then you went on to the financial sector. And can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. It, after graduation, it was through the recession of the early 90s in the States Jobs weren't so plentiful, and there were a few in the financial services industry, specifically brokerage or investment advisor, stockbroker 
is what it was referred to back then. And it was just persistence that I stayed in touch with the manager, the manager's assistant at the time, and took about nine months of calls, weren't really effective emails at the time. And I was ultimately hired by a large Wall Street firm in September of 91 and began career through finance. And the unfortunate thing is I really didn't look at any technology-related or computer-related jobs that might have been developing at the time. Hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about the feeling of that depression and how it was? I mean, you said that you were trying to get a job for a bit of time. Do you remember what was going through your head? You'd send out uh, a number of resumes. You'd hear back from time. You wouldn't hear back from others. I began to see that a call, a follow-up, voicemail from time to time that might elicit something back. And many times you'd hear somebody reply back, oh, thanks for the persistence. I've just been really busy on this project. And I think today, if we look at some of what's happened to communication, we've become so reliant that email it or text or Discord or any of the social media-related communication ways are many times so instant. Mm. But I think we've forgotten that other people have things going on in their life. We'll come back to a word, empathy, I'm sure, through this, Demetrius, mm. of what is it like to be in the other person's shoes? What are they going through at the time? And I found out that many people, they were just busy and they had resumes coming in and they didn't make the time to go through that part of work, even though you know, I would have liked if they did, yeah. but they uh, had it on their own. But you do feel a bit like a failure, if you will, that, well, nobody wants me because they're not getting back to me. I'm this terrible person. That's not the case. So it's interesting that you say that and the busyness of people, and especially now I think most of us have probably seen the report that came out fairly recently about people working at Goldman Sachs, I believe, Mm -hmm. and how much they said they work and how basically they're overworked. And you went to work for Goldman Sachs, if I'm not mistaken. It was actually Merrill Lynch. Okay. Sorry. So you went to work for Merrill Lynch and you got taken up in that whole process. What was that like? Was it working yourself to the bone for every day, every night during the week, and then having a release on the weekend? Yes and no. And when I describe what I went through, it wasn't to the extreme that that report had generated. Mm. When I started, it was predominance back then of cold calling, just picking up the phone and calling people that you didn't know. You didn't have email at the time. Voicemail existed, so you'd leave messages for some places, but you wouldn't get a call back. Mm. And I remember having the discussion with my wife at the time that the early part of the career was going to be spent with long hours. For me, long hours were about 80 hours a week. Mm. It was five days during the week. I'd come in on Saturday. I might do a little bit on Sunday. 
but we didn't have kids at the time. We knew that that was an investment in growing individual client base and that time at the office would begin to scale down. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was, I look back through life that I was really proud and happy that I had done was making family and my children the priority. So when we had our first son, my wife and I agreed that, well, I'll take one night a week off. That grew to two nights a week, that grew to three nights a week. And as the business began to grow and elevate, that came to a point where later on in my career, I was home at six o'clock for dinner all the time. And I was able to coach their lacrosse teams and soccer when they were when they were little so that became really enjoying but you know technology the, the bad part is that that allowed me to hop back on it when they were asleep or at night and it was with me on vacation so mm-hmm. i look back now saying well it was it was good that technology existed but it was also a bit of a curse because you were always connected to work in some other way and this was just beginning the always on, always connected culture, I imagine. And there was probably no stigmas around it yet or no idea of what it could turn into. So can you talk to us a bit about your trajectory and what you went through at Merrill Lynch and how you ascended through the ranks, if you did, or what, what happened in that job? Um, early on in the career, there were contests, sales contests. There were lists for almost every product category. Back then, there were new account contests. So when you opened up a new account, you got a point or some credit. And it was something that you could track. And there's, I don't know if it, you would call it science today, but there's proven methodology that what you focus on grows. So at the time, young in the industry wanting to grow my individual client base, I knew that if I opened up accounts, that more revenue would come in. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about getting the new account, right? That's the goal and you just back down, okay, well, I need to make, I need to have so many meetings and in order to get so many meetings, I need to make so many phone calls. In order to make the phone calls, I just need to have this much time every day. And that worked. And there were people that had gone through this before and said that if you win one of these contests five years in a row, you would be at an elite status within the company. And okay, that was now a a longer term goal. That was a five-year plan. Okay, well, you've got to start five years and just do the number one, right? So how do you do number one? And I look back fondly to some of that. It was exciting. It was, uh, it was fun. I, my focus was really about clients didn't have as much information or the consumer didn't have as much information. Having an advisor was really valuable. And I set my whole focus on that stakeholder of the customer, the client experience and doing the best that I could for them and thought if I do the best for them today and tomorrow and next week, In the long run, I'll be well-served. And what's interesting, I look back at that philosophy today, think about stakeholder capitalism and the companies that have that that focus, they've done incredibly well. So I wasn't 
wasn't my own creation. Others had followed it and done it substantially better. So where did it go wrong? Well, that, that pressure of contests, of being at the top of the list, was a pressure that I didn't expect as much and certainly didn't handle it well. Certainly was not prepared for what that would do physiologically. I remember there was a fella that was a couple years, 18 months ahead of me that sat behind me. And I would listen to him present his story to a, a prospect. And I remember thinking, well, that's not accurate. And he was really stretching the truth. Some might call it lying. Some might just say he was fibbing. It was a white lie. Whatever you call it, it wasn't honest. It was dishonest. And that stretching of the truth, you saw reward and success and accolades get placed on that person because the results were good. They didn't necessarily care about how they got the results. And that was one thing I look back now as being very unfortunate. Through that time, looking back, you begin to see what does that do for us as individuals. I began to realize that in my early 30s, I wound up making a mistake. I wound up lying to a bank for a line of credit. My intent was, I'm going to invest this money, I'm going to make more in the market than what I'm paying them in interest, and I'll make enough and I'll pay it back. And I'm going to use that word a couple times throughout this discussion today is enough. Mm. And the banker at the time, I remember the conversation seemed cavalier when he said, well, just show us a statement because they did personal lines of credit. I showed him a statement. He said, boy, this looks great. I got the line of credit began to invest it, and that was in May of 2001. September 11th occurred, the markets were down substantially, I was well underwater, I owed far more than what the account balance was worth. And when it came time for renewal of that line of credit, I thought my life was really over at the time. I was stressed, I started drinking more than I should have or was healthy, and when the renewal came, the, the banker not only wanted to approve the line of credit, but also offered to increase it. Mm -hmm. And as I go through this, I want to be very clear. I take personal responsibility for what I had done. I made a mistake. But I think sharing the honesty of what actually transpired, and I don't know to this date what the banker's real interest was in not doing due diligence. I could speculate, of course, but that doesn't really matter. The point is that I stepped over an ethical line and something that I had valued when I was much younger. But the pressures of work, as I look back with this 2020 vision, as I look back, it was those pressures that really began to drive little erosion over time in my behavior. Hmm. So, Demetrius, that occurred, that went on for the better part of 15 years, hiding this loan, hiding what turned into a big hole that I wound up digging for myself. And it got to a point where two things had happened. Roughly 10 years in, 
my wife not knowing or not understanding what was going on, why I was so stressed, thought the only thing she could do is to say, well, look, if you don't stop drinking, I'm leaving. And to me, that became one of those real bell ringing events, the, the, the shock, if you will, that, okay, I need to change. I need to do something different. And six to nine months later, clearer head and being able to assess the situation. I remember standing on the edge of that abyss and just looking down and thinking, I wonder if everybody or family would be better off if I weren't here and that that would solve it. But I began to realize, well, that wasn't going to solve it. That would just trade my problem for somebody else's problem. My boys wouldn't have a dad any longer and that wasn't it. So I really made an effort at that point to get out of the hole that I dug, start living in the light and getting out of the shadows and playing with loopholes and, and being on that unethical side of the fence. But five years later, I realized I can't change it. I couldn't do it. I didn't have the bandwidth or the, the ability to get out of the hole that I dug. So I wound up hiring a defense attorney. We walked into the U.S. attorney in the FBI's office, and I self-reported what I had done. Told him what I had uh, gone through, and process began through the legal system. I was sentenced to 50 months in uh, prison. And while there in that isolation and taken away from family, it was an ability with no other distractions to think. And it was that time to think and just look back to say, well, why did I do what I did? How did that good career, the trajectory, the fellow that I thought I was when I was much younger, how did he get to a point where he made that decision? And the first layer of the onion, someone might say, well, he was a greedy investment banker and it was all about the money. And that, that's, that's the outer layer. That's a, that, it's accurate, but it's not the real core reason of why I did what I did. And that was my search. What was the core reason? And it came down to wanting to prove myself and be enough. And it was that pressure of others whom I thought expected me to have a certain status, a certain income, a certain level of attainment. Mm -hmm. It was those pressures that I allowed to get me and justify what I had done. So can you talk about as you were going through this, I mean, it went on for quite a long time. And I imagine you felt or you knew that it wasn't right what was happening. And do you feel like you turned to drinking because of that? What, what was going through your mind all these years? It, was it just one more year and I'm going to be back on top or I'm going to be able to fix this? Can you walk us through what was happening for those, I think you said 15 years? Yeah. Boy, there's a lot to unpack there. The, one of the first moments or first element of that was there was some continued hope that I could get out of it. And I think that may have been 
naive. That might have been the ego trying to prove myself right that, oh, look, you can get out of this. You'll be okay. And later on, I would learn that we use short-term pleasure, drinking in this case, as a way to numb the pain of what we experience. Some use drugs, some use alcohol, some it's shopping, some it's any other addictive kind of behavior, but it's that short-term pleasure that we go to, that we get that little shot of dopamine and we feel just a little bit better for that time period. And then that wears off and then we're back to where we started before, sometimes worse because now we have that quote hangover of whatever it was and then we need more of that. You see this with shopping is another example, right? You buy some a great pair of boots or slacks or for whatever it might be and you wear it for a while or you don't wear it and then you go out and do it again. Mm-hmm. And drinking happened to be the one thing for me where you just numb the pain, you'd feel a little bit better. And then there was also the point where it would happen to celebrate. You'd have a good day, the markets were up, you'd get a new client, you'd, you'd feel joyous and you'd have another cocktail just to you know, kind of numb what you were going down. And that cycle is what I see a lot of people going through. And, and there's a different perspective for all of this, right? Somebody's level of bad is very different than another levels. And I don't want to put down anybody's journey of where they are in life or say that one is worse than the other. If, it, if it's happening to you, it, it could be bad. And you make that, that scale of the determinant. But I saw others that were dealing with the same thing, which is in part why I want to be able to just talk about this and share with others across all different industries what just happens to us on a, on a personal level. So as you were going about this and you were going through it, was there no possibility for you, because you were still working, was there no possibility for you to say, I'm done and I need to just give this all back? It was once, it was too late that you realized that? Good question. The desire to leave or to try and make a change in the career followed me for the better part of a decade. In fact, it was probably a little bit longer than that. I could see the stress of the industry, having client commitments, having firm-related commitments, market-related commitments, family commitments, all began to weigh at different times, different pressures, but they were all happening at the same time. Mm in varying degrees. And I did want to leave. I wanted to get out in some capacity, but I felt that I had this thing hanging over me 
And if I ever pushed the button and left, that you know, there would be a lot of damage in the way. So I justified, tried to, that staying at it, working at it would be the best way for all stakeholders to, to work. I, I, didn't, I didn't want the banks to lose money. I didn't want my family to go through what they did. I didn't want my clients to feel what they did or the firm or my own reputation. I didn't want any of those things to occur. Ultimately, the, that did occur. Those were byproducts of that one step. And early on, it would have been probably easier to have fessed up to it and gotten out of it. And I think that's another message here is that we all make mistakes. We all are human. And whether it's our personal or professional lives, where we do something or say something that we wish we could take back. And if we find a way and the courage to be able to own it early, my mother-in-law had a great comment of, if you mess up, fess up. She would say that to the boys as they were young. And that really was an interesting thing looking back that it appears to me that when people come forward and apologize sincerely for what they've done, and there are, there's research on how to do a proper apology, and it's not that you want to game the system of an apology, but if we're empathetic and we can put ourselves in the other person's shoes, and we know what we did. We admit that what we did was wrong and a mistake based on the feelings that it caused to someone else. If we can talk about how we're going to do things differently next time, then the apology becomes something that we can then internalize and really own. And we get at really the root cause of the behavior. And I've written about this where ethics training today really focuses at a symptomatic level of a problem. It's all very high level. It's about the latest law or regulation or in technology, you know, AI ethics. And they're talking about this high level system. But real ethics, the better way to teach ethics is really at the core of the values of, say, if it's, if it's an organization, the values of the organization and what they really stand for and how to put that into practice. If it's you personally, what do you really value and why? And how can you demonstrate that every day by the actions that you have? And one, if, you, if you do this already, if you write it down, that's really good. That's a great exercise because then you can go back and look at it. If you talk about it with others, there's another great way to do it and then ultimately doing it, right? You put, put those values into actions every day and, and realize that we can be off a little bit from that target, that zero degree compass heading that we may set for ourselves. But you have that to be able to reckon back to through time. Hmm. So I'm really interested in this process that you undertook when you 
went through and you turned yourself in and then you went through and you, you did time and you came out the other side. But I find it fascinating that there was this point when you said, I can't handle it anymore. And there was that breaking point and you decided to get a lawyer and turn yourself in. And I really would love to know when you were driving over there, when was it you and the lawyer driving in the same car? Did you hesitate before you went into the building? Did you think twice and say, maybe one more year and I can figure this all out? How did you have the conviction or did you not have the conviction? Conviction is an interesting word as you talk about describing that mental capacity at the time. You know, I, I had tried to fix it, repair the damage for five years. I still kept it a secret from everyone else. Nobody else knew. It was a surprise to all what I'll call stakeholders involved. And it, it was ripping the Band-Aid off. I had tried for five years to do it, and there wasn't another way out. So pull the Band-Aid off. It'll be painful, and it'll hurt. And then you can begin to start anew. You can start from a place of honesty about the mistakes, the life, and have a better way to try and fix it. And it seems that many people, if they give an apology, it's only done because that's what they're told that they have to do and they really don't mean it. And you know, I'd, I'd ask everybody as they listen to that, if you could think about a time in your life when somebody gave you an apology and you knew that it was false, that there was no meaning behind it. And how did you feel from that apology? And now we just turn that around the other way. If we do something wrong to another person, try to understand the impact on them. How did that make them feel? How did that their business get affected, them personally, if it's in a relationship. And if we approach those interactions with that empathy and compassion, I think we have a, a better format, a better architecture for our own well-being. But in circling back to that other question, I, had, I tried other things. I had to do something different. And this was the way, just push, pushing that, that detonation button, if you will, and just trying to get a clean slate and start over. Mm. And do you remember, were you ner nervous about it? Or was it something that you felt so strongly that it needs to happen, you blocked out all other thoughts? You know, it's interesting, as I was able to interview hundreds of other men in a similar position, similar instance, many of them refer to a moment when they finally come clean, when they finally admit that they were wrong and also accept it, accept that they made this mistake. Think about the pressure that you have when you keep something from someone else. And when you finally atone for what you've done, the levity that you have, the, the emotional lift, the the enlightenment that you feel is amazing. 
so as nerve wracking as it was not knowing what was in store and realizing family and friends and clients and all of these other stakeholders that were going to be affected. Okay. What can I do to help all of them through this? It was lightning, if you will. It was the ability that, okay, I don't have to hide anymore. At least now I can face the truth and whatever consequences come. Okay. I'll deal with those as best as I can. So, Prison isn't exactly known for instilling positive values into a person. <laughs> but in your case, it actually, you came out a different person. Can you talk to us about that transformation and what you did and how you feel that happened? I think part of that goes to as I look back, just the core of who I had been, what I really value, right? So each of us, as we're children, as we go through adolescence, we start to understand who we are, what we like, the things that really capture our attention and those that don't, and those things that we don't like. And during that process I described before, I really had to understand where I went wrong and why I went wrong. And you begin to admit some things to yourself that are really rather painful. And mindfulness, I didn't have an app. This wasn't something that I had, you know, I could just Google at the time to figure it out. You, it just became a natural process of mindfulness and really understanding your own thoughts. Prison is not a place that men will find peace in, in some instances. We've seen in the States and I think around the world the past 18 months or so social injustice. And we could have a whole other podcast about, about that topic. But it is interesting on what drives people's behavior around injustice. And there are many men that are in the system where they did get the short end of the straw or the time was very disproportionate to the crime that they had. And there are others that we see that don't go to prison that have done horrific things that we scratch our head and say, well, why are they not there? So you have to be able to put that part down, the social injustice or justice for that matter. You have to be able to put that down and just really work on yourself. And there were many men through through my experience that did find that. In fact, I wound up being approached by one of the leaders in the education department to teach a positive mental attitude class because they saw what I was working on and really trying to change. That class led into really a positive psychology class. And at the end, it was referred to as the happiness class. And it was about how do we change our thinking the ideals that we have, the constructs around our own well-being into something different. And that goes straight back to the root cause of why we think the way that we do. And if we can understand that, and there were many men along the journey that began to see mistakes differently, they began to see happiness, began talking about gratitude and the small things in life that we were very grateful for, even in a prison environment where you could have 
a beautiful day and just appreciate a sunny sky. Then taking that and building upon others. How do our actions affect others? How does our focus on what it is that we're driving for affect family or kids or spouse, partners in whatever work that we do? So there were many that joined. It was it was exciting to see for the better than two years that I taught that class with more than 10 cohorts and 25 to 30 students in each class. I did a happiness questionnaire at the beginning of class, and then I did one at the end to measure, okay, what impact did we have over this 10-week quarter? And we were able to get, I was able to get an 11.7% increase in those scores over that period of time, 10 weeks, just by having people try to focus on and, and stay present with what are they grateful for and what what does bring them happiness and the impact on others. It was really cool. And some of the transformations were, were very heartening to hear guys just get it. Hmm. And this whole time, was that your goal in prison? Was it to really, like you mentioned before, atone for what you had done? Or was it something that just happened? That's a good question. The atonement, certainly to family, and we can apologize to those that we have harmed directly. The work on the out, now being home, this podcast, the other work that I'm doing is really about restorative justice in a way. How can I put right what happened? And how can I bring my mistake, my, my issue, my shortcoming to light, to be able to help others wherever they are in their journey. And that goes back to a central thing when I was younger that I love to make people laugh and smile and feel good. As an advisor, my focus was on the client. What could I do to help them reach their, their goals? How could we create portfolios that fit their risk tolerance. I mean, there was a, the, that, that part of the stakeholder focus. So that's been, for me, internal since as long as I can remember about wanting to serve and help others, which is the driver of wanting to be able to do this and share with people this architecture of getting really to the core root of how we think and why we think what we think. And for those that are in technology and, and building AI is just one example. People get to be as developers and writers of code and leaders of these companies in a very special and intimate place in the lives of potentially millions of other people. Writing a code that, as your podcast name questions, are you a robot? If we don't know by interacting with a chatbot in some capacity, if that other side is real or not, you have an incredibly powerful position in the future of whatever it is you're designing to really help others and make a huge impact. Or 
if it's focused on a different perspective, maybe it's just, I want the shareholders to do really well. And you don't necessarily care about the stakeholders ultimate or the consumer or the technology, right? The user. Mm -hmm. If you don't concern yourself as much with how they do at the end of this, and there's that empathy, I think we lose a tremendous opportunity, not only to solve that user's puzzle or problem, but also for ourselves, because internally, I think people deal and handle the, the stress, maybe the guilt or the design of what they've done that isn't necessarily doing what they've wanted it to do in the beginning. And that's where the, the grading of ethical behavior and ethical programming is so important because we just need that open and honest discussion of how is what we're doing affecting others and how can we catch mistakes early on. And I would go so far as to maybe explain to others okay, we caught this mistake, here's how we're fixing it. And that will build trust, that will gain further credibility where the ultimate consumer really loves that company or the design because now they see that their interests are really at the forefront of their design and what they're doing. And it's not just technology, but if you look at medical, if you look at entertainment, if you look at any other industry, I think the same types of things apply. Transparency is crucial. I completely yes. agree with you on that. There's one thing that you brought up at the beginning of that answer that made me think back to the first answer that you had and you spoke about how friends diverted you from a path of enjoying technology and then you just said how from a very early age you really enjoyed making people laugh and entertaining others. For me, it feels like there's a very fine line between pleasing others and letting their displeasure of you or displeasure affect you. So I guess the question there is, have you sat with that at all as to because I notice it with myself in when I go through this, these types of feelings of caring very much about what the outside thinks. But then I also would like to help very much people that are in my surroundings. So how do you balance the two of those so that you are not affected if what you're doing is not necessarily entertaining or helping. Another really good point that as we go through our journeys, as we go through whatever it is that we're doing, the skills, the innate skills that we have, you mentioned two things in there that I think were really important. One is that you want to have an impact with what you're doing, right? You want this podcast to mean something to the people that listen to it. And you're putting yourself in their shoes, asking really tough questions, good questions and very honest questions. 
and you have compassion around it. Right? There is the concern for others as to how will this be impacted. So once you've produced something, the natural way to figure out did it resonate, did it land with them correctly, is just to ask. Demetrius, how did this land with you? My intention was this. Is this what worked? And then they can say yes or no. Well, no, it didn't. Okay, why not? What, what did I miss? What did I not share that could have been more valuable? That, that could have had it land with you with more impact? And this is where our ego or the other person's ego may come in and say, boy, I don't want to hurt Demetrius and say that this really didn't land well, right? But I think as, as the listener, we want that honest feedback. And, and it's gotten so distorted over the last period of time. If we called it a decade, maybe it was 20 years, maybe it was more. But the ability to give feedback honestly and with care, compassion, of Demetrius, this is where it fell short. Okay, now you can say, well, here's my intent. I want this work to have a meaning. And I just did this podcast and it really didn't resonate with people. And I just got feedback here that here's how I could do it a little bit differently. Okay, well then how can I tweak, change, modify what I'm doing or the questions that I ask to get that to land better with them? You're still coming from your same message, your, your point of concern, your education, the empathy that I want this to, to land well with you. And then if it doesn't, and you make some modifications, you try it again. When I did that class for that better than two years, it was a constant question back to the audience, to the students that were there, please share your feedback. And I was really impressed. These are some guys that grew up in the not so great neighborhoods and very difficult home situations throughout their life that gave really nice feedback of, you know, if you did more of this or less of that, I didn't really think this landed well. Okay. Take down my own ego that, no, I'm right. I have to be proven correctly that this was the absolute best way to do it and say, okay, how can I take that feedback and incorporate that into the next time I do it? so that it lands on the next group a little bit better. And that's just a constant questioning back to stakeholder-focused mindset, right? We go back to our, our audience, our consumers of how did this work? How did this land with you? You check back with yourself. Okay, is this still doing what I wanted it to do? Mm. And how many times for the audience to just think about this for a moment, if you've ever gotten feedback from somebody, how you feel based upon their response. Because we all know, we've all had people that were just, they were quick to be mean and they were quick to just dig something right into you and say, this sucks because of X, Y, and Z. And they go onto social media and they just berate versus those that just sit down with you and say, well, you said this and I didn't understand it, or this didn't make sense, or this didn't apply to me. Okay, thank you. Thanks for the feedback. We'll make some adjustments as we can for the programming or the script, or that wasn't the intention. 
maybe we can, if we get enough people, we can talk about this at another time. So I think this constant feedback, once again, it goes back to empathy and honesty and, and avoiding the errors of omission by dishonesty to help people who are interested become better. And I really hope this, this podcast can do that where people just have that landing with them wherever they are in that journey of, boy, that makes sense here or it doesn't. And hopefully we'll get some really good feedback to make other improvements or other adjustments or for those that want to continue the journey, shoot me an email and we can have that discussion too. Exactly. You've inspired me to ask for feedback on this podcast right now. So anyone listening, please let us know what you think. I really like that. And I think there is another important piece here that maybe didn't come out so clear on the question, but you managed to resolve the doubt in my head was how you can preference the feedback of someone where I look at the beginning of your life and you spoke about how you got taken off the path of technology because of social pressure. And then asking for feedback, but making sure that you're still able to stay true to yourself and not let that social pressure take you off of your path. So I think that is an important piece that you spoke about, how this is something that you want to continue checking back in. Is this my main goal? Is this what I was going for? So that you don't get confused in that way. Now, let's talk a minute about... Let's talk for a minute about how you right now, after going through all of this, having these life experiences that undoubtedly enriched your perspective and your experience and the way that you handle situations now, how would you advise a company or a firm that is at risk of making mistakes or is already maybe going down that path? And it's not too late, but there definitely needs, a reckoning needs to happen. You spoke earlier about pulling the Band-Aid off. Is that the adequate response in all situations? Just get it done with? In answering that, I see at this moment, that size and scale of the organization can really matter. For startups, for newer companies, maybe they've gotten a a seed round, a series A. For the founders to have written down the set of values of why they want to solve this problem and what flagposts they're going to place in the ground, that these are just absolutes. We are not going to allow our technology to do this. We're not going to allow the product to do this. This is why we're pursuing this problem. Most of that problem solving shows up in those presentations, but giving the reasoning why and then taking that document 
that set of values and just making sure that everybody that you hire, that you bring on board, the stakeholders that you enter, interact with all have that same set of values and that heading of this is where we're going and this is why we're doing what we're doing. And some great work has been done by Simon Sinek on the power of why or start with why. When you have a why, the how is secondary. And Viktor Frankl, who is a POW, wrote his book, A Man's Search for Meaning. And the quote won't be exact, but it is very close to a person's why will outshine any how. So if you have a why you want to do something and it's good and it's producing good for others, the how, you'll figure out the how. For larger companies that maybe already have systems in place and maybe they understand that they're on the wrong track and if there's a culture where they've allowed people that are younger in the organization to speak up and just point out things that are missing, some of it is that we have to change, right? It's the acknowledgement, it's the setting aside of all those the, the egos that get up into the, the leadership or the board of directors or even with shareholders and say, we're headed in the wrong direction or we are missing the mark of where we really wanted to go. And this gets back to a, a point of, of my work of there's education, there's advisory, and there's enablement or the empowerment of how do we actually do this? What actions can I take today that began to align me back to the direction that I want to go, the values that are there. And it just has to start there. And it'll start small, you know, ripping the Band-Aid off. Yes, it can be good to do. But when you have a lot of other stakeholders that are involved, you, know, you really have to come to specific terms on why you're doing what you're doing or how you're doing it. But you can always start with smaller pieces, small changes, make them actionable, get everybody on board as to why we're doing what we're doing. And if you share that with your other stakeholders, let's say the customer as an example. So, and even personally, if we share that with the people close to us of why we're making the changes, I believe a lot of people are going to be surprised on how supportive they, how, how much support they get from those other stakeholders for supporting that change. So can you talk to me a little bit about when you are going for this, why, how you make sure to get more than just a superficial answer? Because I think to, why are you doing that? Well, to make money. And that seems a little bit like a cop-out to me. Mm -hmm. So how can we dig deeper so that we don't get that kind of answer? That was a, that was a very popular question or a very um, common answer. Well, I'm, I'm doing this for money. The question that I would then come back to is, why do you want the money? What is money going to do to help you? And a response could be, well, I, I need to pay my mortgage, okay? 
that that's a valid point. Right? You need money to make to, to pay the mortgage. Continue to ask yourself, why do you need more money? If you have a certain level in the bank account that's pretty comfortable, well, why do you need 10 times that? What is that difference going to do for you in the accumulation of a material asset? And this is an important part to, to share with people because I think value creation and the, the growth and success of a business is important to all of us. The desire for money isn't bad or it isn't good. It's the reason for that desire that could be the problem. So Demetrius, if you said, well, I want to have money, well, what is it about the money that is going to have an impact for you? I can well, a Tesla. I'll, pardon? I'll get a Tesla. Okay, and, and what is it about the Tesla that is going to bring you meaning or purpose? What is it about having a Tesla that's important? The auto drive. The auto drive. And what is it about that auto drive? Why is that such an important thing to be able to have? Then I won't have to worry about driving. I can just let it go or it will be a much easier experience to drive. Okay. And, and do you drive a lot then? Yeah. Uh, these days, sadly, I was in the city, but now I'm on the countryside and, and I drive more than I would like. Okay. So just that very quick example, 20 seconds, you were able to describe that, and, and maybe here's the other part that I would ask, why is a Tesla better at auto drive for a 100,000 euro car, 80,000 euro car, US dollar wise? Why is that car better than a competitor? Why is it that one that makes the difference for you versus just getting a cheap auto drive car? Cheaper. Yeah. Well, I don't know because I don't have a Tesla yet, <laughs> nor do I think I'm going to get one. Uh, but the idea is that they have the best uh, autopilot functionality. Okay. So it's a, it's a quality, it's a safety related autopilot component. I don't have any data right now that would dispute that. I think they've done a really good job. In fact, Tesla, if you compared it to one of their other competitors, Elon Musk has been very upfront with anything that's gone wrong with the car to say, I'm sorry, and we'll work with those to fix it. And I think taking that responsibility is one of the things that causes people to really have that affinity towards Tesla because he knows that the consumer and the user is very valuable to this entire experience. And he creates products around the feedback that he gets from them. So in your example, wanting money for a Tesla because of the autopilot and you're driving more, so that would be a safety component, seems rather reasonable. That all seems okay. Now it's what can you do to gain the income or the value creation to be able to afford that Tesla? What actions do you have to take to get there? And then that becomes 
the next question of, well, I'm going to do these podcasts. I'm going to share this information and hopefully help others. And by helping others, that's going to help gain exposure for the company and I'll gain money that way to be able to get my Tesla. That all seems realistic. That seems like a fair pattern of connecting the dots. If on the other hand, you said, well, because I'm going to be cool at the club, other people will look at me and say that I'm successful. I would, I would say that that falls into the category of that's probably not the best decision to be able to make and be able to go from there. Yeah. I wonder, cause there is a bit of both of that, right? There, I don't think any of these decisions are made in a vacuum. So you have on one side, it is supposed to have the best autopilot. And then on the other side you have, Oh, it's also a flashy brand and it says something. So, it's interesting to look at that and again, to examine yourself. And I like the idea here is just continue asking why until you feel like you've gotten to a reasonably deep enough answer and being honest about it. Is that the only reason? Is there, are there other reasons? And if so, are those other reasons important and, or should they really be looked at as something that is a necessity. And one thing that you have mentioned a few times is this word enough. And speaking about that, I think a friend of mine told me that he, so somebody's going to have to fact check this on us. Uh, probably Ria, shout out to Ria who helps behind the scenes doing a lot of the, the fact checking. But there was a study done and it said basically the no matter how much money you make, you always want around 18% more. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about enough. Sure. Uh, before we go to enough, could I just step back for a moment as we talk about that question of why? I've seen on some of the posts where you have your, your child up on your shoulders Two to four-year-olds are great inquisitors. One of the questions that we hear so many times, little children ask is why. They're not doing it to annoy mom and dad. They're not doing it to be pests. They're just doing it to learn. Why does this happen? And the very first thing is, well, why is that hot? Or why is this, the, the sky blue? Or why do these things exist? And then they get into a little bit more sophisticated reasoning of, well, why do we not lie? Or why do we do things this way? And they're beginning in their own mind to, to link and get those sets of values of what the family finds important. And if you were an organization, that becomes your culture. So people questioning why we do this is just a natural way that we begin to learn by gathering information and more importantly, another perspective that we trust and look up to, child to a parent. Why do we do this? So if we uncover that and somewhat be honest like a child and just say, you know what, I don't know. Let's go look it up. Or here are the reasons why we value this in our family. 
or this is why we value this in our organization, I think can be a great exercise to be able to go through, but it does take some time and it does take a little bit of patience. Now, in answer to your other question about enough, 18% more, boy, I think we can all see when we have a certain level of income or net worth or accumulated items that there's always something more behind that. A friend of mine shared an example that said, if you had a sports car and it doesn't matter, you know, let's say you had a, uh, an early stage BMW, a three series or one series BMW, you buy the BMW and now you're in the BMW mindset and the club. And that goes all the way up to the M5, the M6, the, the higher end brands. And then you get up there and you're always, you go to the club or you go driving on the street and you see the next one. You're like, oh boy, that one looks pretty cool. Let's say that you go into the Porsche community and you buy a 911. Well, now all of a sudden you have 911s that go up to $250,000 or pounds or euros. There's always something more in those categories to look at and to think that what I have isn't cool any longer or that I'm now comparing it to something else. And that comparative game is really, can be really dangerous, especially if you just bought the brand new M5 and then the next cycle they come out with the new M5 and you're like, oh boy, that's the coolest car, right? And you always want the next one. It's like, reframe it back to, Okay, why do you want the M5? Well, I love driving. Or in your case, the Tesla. You, you are driving a lot more. Tesla is safer. Yes, there's a cool factor of it, but it is for your personal enjoyment. Those are all good reasons. And once you attain that, once you buy that, we haven't discussed this yet, but the antidote for enough is gratitude. Mm. and really being thankful for the things that we have in our lives. Linking this back to the experience that I had for a moment, I didn't have access to family. I couldn't pick up a phone. I couldn't email regularly. I couldn't talk to friends. I had people go through medical procedures and surgeries that I was worried about them and couldn't get in touch with them. I didn't have food that I was used to or really enjoyed. I really didn't. I didn't drive. I was missing freedom, having a phone access. And that begins to reframe what is it in your life that is really important that if it was not there, that you would really miss. And I think in the early part of the pandemic, it was people. We all stopped for a couple of months and we had the Zooms and we were connecting. And there was this lift, it felt like, where people were being silly again with their family. They were enjoying the time together. It was a little bit of a holiday. And yes, we were scared, but people got through it. And just being together was enough. 
And then at least in the states, and I think it happened really on a global basis, we saw the, the social injustice and the elections come about and this anxiety that began to pit people against each other. And I think now that things are beginning to maybe maybe a little bit calmer, we get that time to reassess, to just sit back and try to be quiet, mindful, and look at what we have in life and just be very thankful that we have what we have. And what would you do if you did not have that thing in your life anymore? And hopefully that then begins to answer the question that whatever it is becomes enough. Mm. Can you talk to me a little bit about the phases in your life where enough was never enough and then it became enough? Were the phases. I think in the early part of my career, in the growth phase, the firm was saying enough is never enough. If you bring in one account, you needed to bring in two. If you brought in five accounts, you needed 10. If you brought in a million dollar new account, well, it needed to be five. Enough was never enough. And you couldn't be satisfied with what you had because you had to keep growing. I see this happening quite a bit in business today. People reach a certain level, they complete a project, they produce some code, they create value in the company, whatever it is that they do, many people will then say, what's next? What are you going to do to follow up? Or can you do it bigger? Can you do it faster? Can you do it stronger? Whatever. Other people begin to say, well, that isn't enough. If If you're an athlete, whatever your specialty is, you need to do it faster because that's not enough. Okay. Some of those competitions, some of the where, where first and second place is by very minute fractions of seconds, well, that does become rather difficult. That is, that's the nature of competition. But I think as we look personally deeper into that component of what is enough, early part of my career, enough was never enough. I began to have that uh, that trouble, that problem. Well, certainly, you know, enough didn't seem enough because I needed more to get out of the hole that I was in. The the pressure that that can put on relationships. We haven't talked about this as much, but for your partners, for spouse, for work related partners, when you can see what they're going through, and you see the output, the product of their work, their effort, just in a relationship and demanding they do more, well, you could be a better spouse, you could be a better partner, you could be doing this, that, or the other thing. That becomes pretty hard when now people really close to you are saying that you're not enough, right? And that was the the fallacy that I let challenge me in that early 2000 frame. I let the perception of others drive those actions to, in a sense, step over the line. And again, it it seemed easy enough at the time because I could justify it and others were doing it in various capacities, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to re go over that again, but that idea of enough 
and how do we connect with other people, I think is an important, an important piece, not only personally, but, but professionally. And I think the last part of this, that most recent experience when I had near nothing, I still had my family, I had friends, I had my spouse still with me, former clients that were concerned for my well-being. There's a song in The Greatest Showman that P.T. Barnum sings from now on. And he talks about enough being enough, where he was around a bunch of others and he was just there for the sake of being there. But when all that trouble and what remains, that's what's true. And that's what we find in life that really means something. Those people that stick by you through anything, that becomes enough. That becomes the moment when you know that you've, you've done well, that you're, that you're good, that you can be happy with, with those environments. That's where I am today, that I have the love of my, my wife, my boys, friends. The receptivity to this message has been really heartwarming and it, it is resonating with people. And I hope it makes a difference. Please share back that if you hear something or want a little bit further explanation or that it, it, it's helping, please share that. And if it's not, if it doesn't land well, please share that too so that we can try to make this a little bit uh, uh, land better next time. Right now, enough is enough. It's good. Yeah, I think we've all made mistakes. There's nobody among us that lives with a clean slate. So, of course, it is great to see this story uh, and see how you've taken the obstacle and turned it into a blessing and this blessing in disguise, right? I have one last question for you that we ask all of the guests, and it is, Jeff, are you a robot? I am not a robot. Excellent. I appreciate your time here with me today. I really want to let everyone listening know that I'm taking it to heart. If you have feedback for us, let us know. Also, we have a Slack community that you can jump into. You can write us a a review on whatever the chosen platform that you listen to this on is. And I'm going to say thank you again, Jeff. This has been a fascinating story. And for me, it is truly inspiring to hear how you have dealt with all of this. Demetrius, thank you very much. Thank you, listeners. I hope it does have some impact and landed with you very nicely. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Demetrius. Take care.